Hello folks and a warm welcome, because you proper need it at the moment, it's bloody freezing, to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, North Wales' premier one-person true crime show seeking out the unusual and forgotten cases, both solved and unsolved ones, from all over the UK and Ireland. I'm Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. It's fabulous as ever having you guys all joining me from far and wide. It means the absolute world and I hope that as you hear the episode, you're all good, well and on the way ready for Christmas. So this episode brings the series traditional listener episode where I've got a pair of curated accounts from listeners to the show who've written up or researched cases. Now we always love to do these episodes and we shall get to them in a short while. Firstly though, many thanks for your responses and feedback concerning the previous episode, well episodes of the series, the Monsters of Merseyside episodes. Heaney and Morrison, some of the vilest crimes that we've ever encountered here on the show, I'm sure you'll agree. And that's coming from this series where we've already seen triple military murders, HIV positive serial killers and somebody cooking someone's brains in clover margarine. I had to get the definition of clover right there. The backlash that you get if you get trivia like that wrong, you wouldn't believe at all. But I'm sure you see what I mean about monsters though through those accounts. Any crimes against children and the elderly always get me anyway, but those I thought them a proper different level. They were just vile. Thanks also this week to the return of the new Patreon supporters of the show, that's namely Claire Hayden-Jones, Lauren Wright, Karen Reese, Lorraine Moore, Morwenna Moss, Deborah Allen, Mary Quadermine, Katrina Kelly, now please forgive me if I pronounce this wrongly, Bjarni Bjorvin Wilhelmilsson, plus Letty May and Ruby Moon who have both edited their pledges. Your support is so very much appreciated, guys. There's been stuff sent out for some of you. You've got your Danny drawings, etc. that are on the way. But I hope you've all had chance to listen to the 23 bonus episodes of the show that come with being a Patreon supporter. The latest one, The Enigma of Enfield Lodge, was out at the arse end of November. And of course, we've got one left to go this year that will be out later this month. If you guys wish to get your ears on some bonus episodes of the show like these kind folks I mentioned and hear tales such as Murdering Lincoln, The Beauty in the Bikini and The War That Comes Home to name but a couple of them then it's very simple to do and it's very straightforward. Simply head over to the Patreon site and look up the True Crime Enthusiast podcast which make sure you get the podcast suffix on there. You'll find the show on there with the same logo. Choose your tier, boom, off you go. Or there's an ever-present link within the episode show notes as per usual. Meanwhile, back on the regular show, there are just a few episodes left of this series before I have a few weeks break and put my feet up for a bit, bury myself in yet more and more books and then begin preparation for series 5 of the show. 
There are several cases I've had on the working list for this series that haven't made it into this one, so a chunk of the next series is already selected, plus I've earmarked some more tales. I don't quite know how the running order or choice will actually compare to the list, because I'm a fickle bastard, and as you know, I do chop and change like a Brexit strategy. But the rest of this series is selected and nailed down, and it begins here with our traditional series listener written episode, where I hand it over to some of you guys who respond to my invites to choose, research and write up a case of interest to yourselves and get to hear your work aired. I always love hosting these episodes as I said, and as I've said before, this is exactly how I started doing the show that you're listening to now, and I'm a big believer in paying stuff forward. Plus the cases chosen have so far for past series been some of the most interesting I've heard, and also ones I either wasn't familiar with or hadn't considered at all for the show. I'm not an oracle after all. It's also nice because with these, in past series they featured topics I wouldn't have necessarily considered, and it's always good to mix stuff up a bit I think. And it's actually the third time I've done so this series, after the two great accounts that we've had the pleasure of hearing from Julia Crane. So the accounts from the cases you're about to hear have all been researched and submitted by listeners to the show. As ever, the episode this week contains descriptions of crimes and events that some listeners may find disturbing or upsetting, so as always, please use discretion whilst you listen, guys. With that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast and friends this week for Listener Week Goes Forth. The first account of the episode is one sent to me by a listener we'll simply call Rachel. I do respect people's right to anonymity, of course. I've had the account for a couple of months now, and it's a fairly recent tale that stems from the county of Buckinghamshire, quite near to where Rachel lives. It's one that focuses upon a very real danger, and a subject that I have to admit is not at the forefront of one's mind when you think of true crime. I wouldn't have thought of it for inclusion, to be honest. Yet it's something that takes lives, so kudos to Rachel for highlighting such a topic. And with that, I'll hand it over to her. High Wycombe is a medium-sized town in the English county of Buckinghamshire, the second largest town in the county after Milton Keynes, and hails a number of notable famous residents, including former Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli, cookery oddball Heston Blumenthal, the sixth Doctor Who, Colin Baker, and musicians Dusty Springfield and the rhythm stick receiver himself, Ian Jury. I also loved when I looked up and I didn't know that it's where the Mighty Boosh formed, which if you don't know what it is, have a search for it, you'll either love it or hate it instantly. It's like Marmite or James Corden, who's also from High Wycombe, by the way. And I can't stand him. Founded in Roman times, the town was once famous for its furniture industry, and although the majority of this industry has since declined there, the heritage of it does live on in the town. One example of this is the traditional chair arches that are made from slotting together traditional upright chairs, which stem from one such arch being made for Queen Victoria to pass under when she visited the town in 1877. Recreations of this are still created today for festivals and other special occasions. Another example is the nickname of Cheer Boys that is given to the town's football team, League One Wickham Wanderers FC. Overall, though, Wickham is usually a sleepy, typical suburban town just outside London where nothing much really goes on. 
On the 16th of October 2012, Sean Cletherow, a 28-year-old bodybuilder, was working out at the town's Apollo gym. A few days previously, he'd asked the employees at the gym for a good way for him to rapidly lose weight, and it was suggested to Sean that one certain way for him to do this would be through the use of a sachet of dinotrophenol, or DNP, that was dissolved in water. The drug came in the form of a powder that, when it was combined with water, formed a bright yellow liquid. Sean agreed to try this, so 45-year-old Jamie Chivers, the gym's owner, dropped the sachet off at the Apollo Gym from Precision Laboratories, which was a side business he ran but operated out of the Apollo Gym. And 42-year-old Jason King, not the suave 70s mustachioed crime fighter I don't think, but an employee at the gym, handed the sachet to Sean when he arrived that evening for his workout, simply advising him to consume a beaker of water before taking the mixture, warning him, it won't taste good this. And undoubtedly, it certainly wouldn't have tasted good either. Now I'm sure if you're a regular gym goer, then you see all of these people in the gym who look like the rock and are so massive that they look like they're pushing around an invisible wheelbarrow. How many of you will do that action right now? For the majority of these people, this look is due to a combination of sensible and dedicated workouts, healthy eating and recognised and endorsed supplements. But many people may be so desperate to either be like this or to lose weight and they don't have the time or money for a gym membership or a structured healthy eating plan that they choose other quicker ways, for example, through the use of illegal substances. Many are so blinkered about losing or gaining weight that they're also ignorant about the effects of such drugs and may not even know what they're taking. One of these such substances is the aforementioned dinotrophenol, more commonly known as DNP. Now although this has been marketed to bodybuilders, it's actually more commonly used as a weed killer, which underscores just how truly dangerous it is. Imagine taking weed killer for God's sake. Even as far back as 2003, the Food Standard Agency had described DNP as being extremely dangerous, with side effects of using it including extreme body temperatures and even blindness. Within the last few years, DNP has been linked to several deaths, including medical student Sarah Houston, who died after taking pills containing DNP that she bought over the internet from Argentina to help her lose weight, Chris Mapletoft, who took it while he was studying for his A-levels, Eloise Parry, who died in 2015, Beth Shipsey, who died in 2017, and several others. Now what all of these people had in common is an overwhelming desire to get fit and to lose weight, which sadly made them susceptible to be taken advantage of. So in 2012, Jason King and another man, 48-year-old Peter Perkins, were managing the Apollo Gym in High Wycombe, together with the gym owner, Jamie Chivers. However, the gym was not all that it seemed. As we've said, there was another business going on on the side, called Precision Laboratories, which was used in the arguably much more profitable manufacturing of steroids. And the gym was being used as a front to sell these anabolic steroids and other dodgy fat burners to consumers. Sean Cletherow, after taking the sachet he'd been given, continued to sweat long after he'd finished his workout. He soon began struggling to breathe, and shortly after he'd returned home, with his body temperature rising to alarming rates of almost 42 degrees, he collapsed. 
Although an ambulance was summoned and he was rushed to hospital, Sean died three hours later. His family later said in a statement, Sean was a fun, loving, caring son, grandson, brother and nephew. As a father, he leaves behind a three-year-old daughter who will carry on his infectious personality which made him so popular to all of his friends and those who knew him. Following a post-mortem, police began an investigation and had soon arrived at the Apollo gym. But following news of Sean's death, Chivers, King and Perkins had all moved swiftly to cover their tracks. They'd removed CCTV evidence from a camera at the gym which showed King clearly handing Cletherow the sachet of drugs which killed him. But evidence from another camera overlooking the same spot from a different angle would later show this exchange taking place. Chivers would later complain that he'd forgotten to delete it. It took an investigation lasting almost two years, but in 2014, Jamie Chivers, Jason King and Peter Perkins all came to trial at the Old Bailey in London, charged with the manslaughter of Sean Cletherow. Also implicated with them was a 24-year-old woman named Laura Haig, who was at the time a record-holding English powerlifting champion, and who was also charged following a series of text messages between her and Chivers that were intercepted by police and that showed her complicity with both the steroid business Chivers was running and her knowledge of his role in Sean Cletherow's death. The prosecution, led by John Price QC, claimed at the trial that Perkins and King were both fully aware that the gym was being used as a front to supply DNT and other anabolic steroids. He told the court, Being a member of the Apollo gym, Sean Cletherow knew Jamie Chivers, Peter Perkins and Jason King. He did indeed acquire, purchase DNP because he wanted to lose weight. The deal by which he obtained it was a commercial one. It was not a charitable transaction. Mr. Cletherow paid for it. He further added, The moment he drank that mixture, he was a dead man, for there is no antidote to what he'd consumed. During the trial, a witness would later explain that DNP was notorious in their line of work and that they would have known exactly what they were involved in. The court heard how Chivers had been dealing in steroids for years and was actually on bail for a separate steroid dealing case when Sean Cletherow had died. Yet all were cleared of manslaughter at the trial, although Chivers and Haig were convicted of lesser charges. Haig received a two-year custodial sentence after she was convicted of perverting the course of justice and conspiracy to supply steroids following the trial whereas Chivers was jailed for five years after admitting perverting the course of justice and producing and supplying steroids. Perkins and King faced a retrial the following year in July 2015, this time on charges of conspiracy to produce and supply anabolic steroids, produced through Precision Laboratories, which as we've said was being run from the Apollo gym. On the 24th of July 2015, a jury found both unanimously guilty of these charges and passing sentence, Mr Justice Peter Rook told the pair, The jury in this case have found you both guilty of being knowingly involved in a conspiracy to produce and supply anabolic steroids, in which it's quite clear there was a substantial business. 
Perkins was then jailed for 18 months, whilst King received consecutive sentences of six months imprisonment for attempting to pervert the course of justice, six months consecutive for conspiracy to produce and supply steroids, and one month consecutive for criminal damage at the Apollo gym, making a total of 13 months imprisonment. A large part of these sentences, and indeed in the sentences of Chivers and Haig, was to be spent out on licence. Following the verdict, Sean Clethero's mother, Sharon Ayres, said she took some comfort with the conviction, saying, I hope this highlights the dangers and deters other people from supplying Class C anabolic steroids and also DNP. Whilst Detective Sergeant Paul Quinton from Thames Valley Police echoed this, saying, I hope this will act as a deterrent to those who may consider supplying similar substances and they understand there can be very serious consequences for all those involved. I hope similar tragedies can be avoided in the future. And you would have to hope so too, wouldn't you? Chivers, Haig, Perkins and King have all been released from prison now and have to date stayed away from media attention. Despite the short prison sentences that each received, maybe we can hope that these were enough to deter them so they won't be involved in any such future activities. But if Chivers had been doing the same thing for years and was actually on bail at the time of Sean's death for yet another steroid dealing case, then you've got to seriously doubt that imprisonment is a deterrent when it's weighed against the amount of money that these people must be making. And it seems indeed sadly that convictions such as theirs don't seem to deter others. As late as 2018, a businessman named Bernard Rebelo would be found guilty of the manslaughter of Eloise Parry, a 21-year-old student at Glinder University, in my hometown of Wrexham actually, who died in April 2015 after taking a series of slimming pills that she'd bought online from Rebelo and which had contained DNP. An investigation into her death eventually trailed back to Rebelo and a court in 2018 heard how he was buying DNP in bulk from China for tens of thousands of pounds, then making a living selling it to people who were desperate to lose weight, thereby risking their lives. Rebelo admitted whilst giving evidence during his trial that he'd sold DNP to Miss Parry, but told the jury that he included a warning on his website that the substance was not for human consumption. He was jailed in a London Crown Court for seven years for manslaughter and following this landmark conviction, the head of Harrow Council, Councillor Graham Henson, would say I hope this conviction will stop anyone from selling DNP in this way. Rebelo thought he could hide online, hide from justice behind obscure laws, but he was wrong. We found him, we brought him here and now we've convicted him. So although what people do put in their body is ultimately their own responsibility, if someone's concocting substances such as these for a fast profit, knowing the market is largely made up of impressionable people who may have body image problems or low self-esteem, or even a struggle with mental health, as in the case of Eloise Parry, then if these manufacturers take advantage of these people without any clear warning about the effects, then they should be able to be accountable for anything that happens to them, surely. It's unacceptable, as in the case of Sean Clethero, to just say, this won't taste good this, as a warning, isn't it? Because if you believe that just saying that is suffice, and knowing the effects that these things can have, then you deserve the full weight of the law thrown at you for selling such poison to people for their own consumption, no matter what. 
What do you guys think? So it was something a bit different from the norm on the show to open the episode there, but something I'm sure that you'll agree is no less serious and awful than the kind of subject we usually discuss here, and my utmost thanks to Rachel for her submission. We're back on a bit more familiar ground with the next tales of this episode though, which is an account of a murder and an unsolved murder that was researched and suggested to me some months ago now. It was actually right at the start of this year by listener Ian Corbishley. It's been that long really since we've done one of these listener episodes and it may sit on these accounts for a while, but they do all end up in the episode eventually and I'll hand you over to Ian. For the second part of the episode, we're off to a small village known as Mau Cop, and firstly back to the early morning of Saturday, December the 22nd, 1990. The village stands on a ridge on the border of the counties of Staffordshire and Cheshire, where to the north lies the Flat Cheshire Plain, and to the south, the rolling Biddulph Valley, forming part of the Staffordshire Moorlands. The ridge on which the village sits is an isolated one, but it's one that can be seen from many miles away, in part due to its height, but also due to Maukop Castle, which sits prominently on the highest point of the ridge. Now despite its name, in actual fact it's not a ruined castle that can be seen, but it's the remnants of an 18th century folly that was built by the owners of the nearby road hall in order to improve the view from their estate and I'm not ashamed to say that I had to look up what a folly exactly was there as well. The area surrounding this folly then is largely rolling hills and agricultural land, with many remote country lanes and farm tracks running through it, and consequently it's a popular area with dog walkers. At 7.30 that Saturday morning, one such dog walker was making their way up to Maukop Castle using the village's Castle Road, where in the dawn light, he noticed a Vauxhall Cavalier parked at an angle on one of the dirt tracks that led off the road. Abandoned would be a better word to describe it due to its appearance, and so the dog walker made his way over to investigate. Getting closer, he noticed that it was a taxi bearing the red and black company logo Scraggs, a firm from the nearby city of Stoke-on-Trent. He found that the vehicle was empty and that a portable television set lay on the passenger seat. It was only then, with at first apprehension and then alarm, that he noticed a body lying face down about 20 yards away from the vehicle, further down the track. Rushing to help, he found that the young man lying on the floor was sadly beyond all help already, but this wasn't as the result of a car accident or him suddenly taking ill and dying. The vicious wound to the man's neck, even visible in the dim light, and the extensive blood covering his clothing and the ground where he lay pointed to something much more sinister. The dog walker immediately made his way to the nearest house and telephoned police. When police arrived at the scene shortly afterwards, they found that the man lying in the lane had had his throat slashed, most likely in the vehicle. He'd staggered out of the car, seemingly for help, but the wound had proved too severe and he'd succumbed to his injuries after only a short distance. The vehicle details were recorded and Scrag's taxis were contacted, who told police that they'd been searching for the car, company vehicle Bravo 5, for the previous four hours. The dead man, who it was revealed was the driver of the taxi, 
was 25-year-old Stephen Johnson, a trainee insurance salesman who only worked part-time for the Stoke-on-Trent firm and who lived in the city's Melville Street with his wife, 22-year-old Kathleen, and the couple's two young daughters, 2-year-old Debbie and 3-year-old Roxanne. Stephen was described by all who knew him as likeable and a gentle giant who would do anything for anyone and a kindly devoted family man who was always looking to provide extra for them. To supplement his earnings whilst he was a trainee insurance salesman and with Christmas in mind, he'd recently begun driving taxis at night for Scraggs and had rapidly become well thought of and liked by fellow drivers and staff. On the evening of Friday the 21st of December, which would have been what we traditionally now call Mad Friday. Stephen had put his daughters to bed, kissed Kathleen goodbye, and at about 9pm had reported to the taxi office in Stokes Buckner Pennell Street. He was allocated company vehicle B5, one of only seven with a distinct Scraggs red and black logo on the doors, and began his shift. Being Mad Friday, the Stoke area was packed with many revellers who'd finished work for the Christmas period and consequently Stephen worked solidly. By 2am that Saturday morning, he'd taken and reported 20 fares to various locations around the Stoke area and at 3.15am he was heading to Longton where his fare was a young woman. This route took Stephen through the town of Hanley and continuing towards Longton past the former Shelley's nightclub there, a busy place in the same vein as Manchester's legendary Hacienda nightclub and one that was eventually closed down in 1997. After dropping the young woman off, at around 3.30am Stephen had radioed the office to say that he'd collected another fare from Hanley Road in Hanley to take to Packmore a small village about two miles south from Mau Cop. Now he should have been back at the office within half an hour of this, but there was no sign of Stephen, and all attempted radio contact with him proved fruitless. Scraggs eventually sent out another taxi to look for Stephen, thinking that he may have broken down or been involved in an accident, but at the time they were unable to find him, until police contacted them a couple of hours later reporting what the dog walker had found. Despite a massive investigation, police were, and are, still unable to establish any motive for the murder. Whatever the motive was, it certainly wasn't robbery. The evening's takings of around £50 were still in the vehicle, Stephen's wallet was found on his person, and a small portable television that Stephen took habitually with him to watch while he was waiting for fares was still lying on the passenger seat. Extensive inquiries into Stephen's life revealed nobody who bore him a grudge or wished him any harm, and he was categorically not the type of person to have provoked any violence or picked a row with a customer. Indeed, although he was some six feet four in height, he was a mild-mannered family man. No witnesses were found who'd seen the car being parked at the remote spot off Castle Road, although residents of a nearby house did report that they'd been awoken by the sound of a car labouring up the steep hill at some time before 4am. There was widespread publicity about such a sad motiveless crime, and it brought forward a witness who had a strange encounter on the early morning of December the 22nd. The woman was out walking her dog in an area known as the Rookery between Mau Cop and Kidsgrove at about 7.30am shortly after Stephen's body had been discovered and only about a mile away when she'd encountered a man. 
He was dark-haired, clean-shaven and in his early 30s, and despite the morning's extreme cold weather, was wearing just a cream-coloured shirt and what the witness described as good-quality trousers. Taken aback by the man's appearance, she asked him if he was recovering from the night before, and he replied, it's much worse than that, before making his way off in the opposite direction to her. The dog walker said that the man looked dishevelled as though he'd been out all night, but that she also believed he had blood on his upper left shirt and scratches on his face. Another witness, a resident of Packmore, came forward to tell police that around 4am they saw a man standing on the footpath adjacent to Lord Place, who appeared to be arguing with the driver of a Scraggs taxi. From how he was stood, the man appeared to have just gotten out of the car while the driver was still behind the wheel. As the witness watched, the taxi then drove off in the direction of Mao Cop, but the witness could not see if there was another passenger in the taxi. The passenger who'd gotten out was also too far away for a clear description to be gleaned. Despite an appeal on the March 1991 edition of the BBC's Crime Watch UK, which reconstructed Stephen's final evening and highlighted both of these sightings in it, the people concerned never came forward and were never identified. Nor were the police able to identify all of the fears that Stephen had taken that night. Most did willingly come forward and were eliminated from the police inquiries, but the reconstruction highlighted six fears that remained unidentified. Over the course of the investigation, led by Detective Superintendent John Ravenscroft, 14,500 people across South Cheshire and North Staffordshire were interviewed, and 3,500 statements were taken by the police, but without any success. Widespread searches of the area never revealed a murder weapon. An artist's impression based on the dog walker's sighting was made and circulated widely, but led to nothing. Even most male residents of the Mau Cop and surrounding areas, some 5,000 people in total, were fingerprinted, but none of these prints could match any unidentified ones that were found in the taxi. More than 5,000 lines of inquiry were followed up in total and revealed nothing. Stephen's death did lead to a number of taxis employing the screens that are found in hackney cabs to protect their drivers, but the savage crime left many in fear that the killer would strike again, and a number of them even quit as a result that this fear was so strong. The murder was never classed as unsolved, however, and the case has remained open ever since, albeit now limited to periodic reviews due to the lack of forthcoming information. It's been officially reappealed several times over the years, and each time it is, as well as every Christmas, it brings back the pain and loss for Stephen's family. His two daughters will now have grown up to be young women, perhaps with families of their own, cheated out of having a dad for that period due to the actions of a motiveless killer. On the 10-year anniversary of the murder, back in 2000, Stephen's widow Kathleen and his still-shattered parents as he was their only child, made a heartfelt emotional appeal. Kathleen told a press conference, I think someone is shielding the person who did this. That's unfair on Stephen's two daughters, Debbie and Roxanne, and on his parents, who was the only son they had. If someone knows something, they should phone up and give them in. Stephen's dad, Ken, furthered this, saying, Stephen was a son who would do anything for anyone. He would never do anything against anyone. 
He was easy going and very obliging, too much sometimes, and did the best that he could for everyone. We've had so much taken away, and nothing that anyone does now can ever bring him back. Over the years, Staffordshire Police have questioned dozens of people and revisited the scant evidence available as scientific advances are made to see if any new leads emerge, and in July 2014, it looked as if a breakthrough had been made. It was announced by Staffordshire Police's major investigation team that a 49-year-old Stoke-on-Trent man had been arrested in connection with the case. A number of houses in Stoke-on-Trent and Staffordshire were also searched relating to this man, but in October 2014, it was subsequently announced that the unnamed man had been released from the bail imposed upon him in July and that no further action would be taken against him. Even with the advancements in forensic detection that are available today, police still have not caught Stephen's killer, but they do believe that someone in the area of the murder could still hold vital information about the killer's identity, perhaps a long-harboured suspicion about someone, or a memory triggered by a throwaway comment that Stephen's killer may have made to people years after the murder, and to this day urge anyone with suspicions to come forward. Staffordshire Police are due to issue another appeal about the case later this month as it happens. So as whenever we look at unsolved cases here on the show, the sleuthing hat goes on and I look at and give my opinions based upon what can be gathered from the available evidence. As always, I'm not claiming the following is what has happened, it's myself thinking out loud. And this is a difficult one to look at because there's very little, so there's little I can say. There's no magical DNA profile of the killer, no murder weapon has ever been found, and a mass fingerprinting session in the area all failed to reveal any match for the unidentified fingerprints found in the taxi. There was nothing found in an extensive detailed look at Stephen's life to suggest he had an enemy or was targeted deliberately, he wasn't involved in anything unlawful or illicit, and it doesn't appear to have been a robbery gone wrong, its night's take-ins were still in the car. The artist's impression circulated is based upon the man seen a mile away a few hours later and whilst this is an important person of interest that needed to be traced, there's nothing to definitively say this is the killer. For example, it could have been a late night reveller getting home from a party or someone who'd been fighting or involved in a drunken row with a spouse or a girlfriend. It is likely that this person had been spoken to during the early stages of the initial inquiry though and has just not been recognised. This man has never come forward either, but perhaps this is because he wasn't the killer, but was somewhere other than where he should have been. Perhaps he was with a lover, for example. I personally think it has to be likely that Stephen's killer is this final fare that he picked up in Hanley, heading to Packmore. The amount of passengers he collected for this fare is unknown, but it's also likely that it was Stephen's taxi that was seen by Lordship Place there at about 4am. The distance against time frame is about right, plus the taxi was one of only seven with a unique red and black logo, so it was quite distinct. At least two people were seen, although they were too far away to describe, and there were reportedly raised voices before the taxi drove off in the direction of Mao Cop. Because it was so far away from the witness, it was impossible to say whether there was still a passenger in the vehicle as it drove off, or whether the man stood outside the vehicle had even gotten back into it at all. But it occurred to me, if it was Stephen's taxi, was it necessarily him driving? 
could he have been already dead by this time and his killer or killers because this scenario paints more than one wanted a remote place to dump the body on the vehicle perhaps at a remote place nearby such as Maucop Castle. Perhaps Stephen was carried out of the car for a short distance before fatigue set in or the killer's nerve went and they fled the scene leaving him where he was found on the farm track. Just thinking out loud as ever. But any reasons behind the killing remain a mystery. It's maybe from someone who started out wanting to rob a cabbie and it went drastically much too far to someone who took offence at an innocent remark and just lashed out. A more chilling thought is that Stephen picked up someone who could have just had an urge to kill for who knows what reason. There's so much that we don't know and it remains a frustrating case this one for its sheer motivelessness. One that sadly, due to the lack of clear evidence, no physical or forensic evidence, no clear motive etc, will likely remain a cold case barring a long overdue confession or someone's conscience coming to the fore, leading to police gaining vital information that someone's long harboured out of fear or misguided loyalty. Stephen's family still deserve some answers and to see his killer face justice though. And anyone having information about the case should call, anonymously if wished, Staffordshire Police using the 101 service, or alternatively, Crime Stoppers on 0800 555 111. So abandoned vehicles and brutal murders. It's not something that happens in every remote village, that is it? It's few and far between. But what if I told you that Stephen's horrific murder isn't the first one that the tiny village of Mau Cop has seen in its history? More than half a century has passed now since Frank Walton telephoned the police at 3.30pm on the afternoon of Saturday, February the 9th, 1963 to report his 52-year-old wife Mary as a missing person. He told police that she'd left this Staffordshire home in Chantry Road in the Westlands area of Newcastle-under-Lyme at 6.30pm the previous evening on her way to a meeting in nearby Endon and he'd seen sight nor sound of her since. She'd been driving her own car, a red Mini Traveller, registration number 880WEH and as it was most unlike Mary to have not come home, he was extremely worried about her well-being. She had a telephone call at about half past five last night. She told me someone wanted her to visit them. We both left home at 6.30 in separate cars and that's the last I heard from her, he told police. The police took details of the missing woman and promised Frank that they'd do all that they could, which was bugger all for a while. People do go off, don't they? For all they knew, the Waltons had had a row. So there was no goodnight John boy there. And Mary Walton was just off somewhere cooling down or contemplating things. However, they did pass on details to the oncoming night shift that Saturday. And with the shift handover completed and a bulletin circulated, that was that. Until 10pm that evening, when a bus driver made a horrifying discovery in the village of Mau Cop. On the village high street, in the shadow of the castle ruins... Bus driver Reuben Austin noticed a red mini traveller car still parked where he'd noticed it twice already that afternoon as he'd passed. Now it was not unusual for cars to be abandoned in Maucop when they broke down. It was a relatively isolated spot, it might take a while to find a mechanic, and plus there'd been a heavy snowfall the previous evening. 
but because it had been there so long was still covered with the previous night's heavy snowfall, Reuben stopped his bus on the remote road, as it was back then, and got out to investigate. When he cleared away the frost from the windows and shone his torch into the interior of the vehicle, he saw to his horror the body of a middle-aged woman lying on the back seat. She wasn't having a sleep or a quiet five minutes. The blood covering the woman's head and face told Reuben that she was very clearly dead. Murdered. Making his way to the nearby Mau Cop Inn, Reuben telephoned the police. Shortly afterwards, Detective Chief Superintendent Tom Rimmer arrived over from Chester with several officers, and as the side doors to the vehicle were found to be locked, entry was effected through the estate vehicle's rear door. He soon saw what had freaked Reuben out so. The victim, a well-dressed middle-aged woman, had clearly been severely beaten about the head with a heavy blunt instrument. He could also see that she hadn't been killed in the car, Although her coat and clothing were saturated with blood, there was very little blood staining and no visible evidence of spray or splash in the car itself. It indicated that the woman had been killed elsewhere and had been driven to the remote spot where she was found, most likely late the previous evening. This was supported by the examination from the police surgeon called to the scene, who estimated due to the conditions of the body that the woman had been dead for at least 24 hours. Of course, the question of who the woman was was straightforward. The registration number of the vehicle was checked and was found to be registered to one Mary Walton. The same Mary Walton who had been reported missing earlier that day by her husband Frank. A short time later, the Walton family doctor and family friend Dr James Scott was stood in the morgue where he positively identified the dead woman as Mary Walton Frank collapsing when he was informed and in no fit state to identify her himself. When he was spoken to upon composing himself, Frank repeated the story that he told police when he reported Mary missing, that he'd arrived home from work at 5.30pm as usual and had left an hour later to visit his parents in the nearby village of Audley, whilst Mary had gone out in her own car after receiving a telephone call from someone calling themselves Mrs Manders, suggesting a meeting at the Plough Inn in the nearby village of Endon. He had no idea who the caller was or what the meeting was about, but he explained that Mary had led a local home help team in her position with Staffordshire County Council, who looked after those in the community who were elderly or ill or housebound. Someone from this aspect was all he could think of it being. He went on, and it may not have had any connection with what happened last night. After all, who would have made an appointment with Mary to kill her? She had an enemy in the world and she certainly wasn't mixed up with criminals. She wasn't even a good prospect for a robbery, because she never carried much money with her. When Mary hadn't come home by the next day, Frank began calling around family and friends, but with no joy until he'd contacted Dr Scott, who told Frank that Mary had called on them the previous evening and had returned a book that she'd borrowed, but had only stayed a short time, due to her appointment at 7.30pm. Dr Scott confirmed this when police spoke to him, and he told them that Frank had next contacted him to say that Mary had been found dead. 
Because he'd been in such a state at the news, Frank and his 19-year-old daughter Janet had gone around to the doctor's house where Dr Scott had agreed at once to go and identify Mary's body in Frank's place. The immediate and obvious prime suspect in the murder, Frank Walton's movements from the previous evening were now established and scrutinised. However, it was soon found that he had indeed that Friday evening been at the home of his elderly parents and a neighbour in the tight cul-de-sac of Chantry Road confirmed that he'd seen Frank return home for about 8.30pm where he then garaged his car and it had not moved for the rest of the evening. The Walton household was searched but nothing to help further the murder investigation was found and Frank was ultimately ruled out as a suspect in his wife's murder. Detective Superintendent Rimmer and his team next made inquiries at the Plough Inn, speaking to staff and regular customers there, but no one who was spoken to could remember seeing Mary Walton in there on that Friday evening. Four witnesses did come forward to say that they'd seen two women sat in a red mini in the pub car park that evening, however, so it was therefore concluded that the meeting had taken place outside the pub and Mary had either followed the other woman's car or had collected her and driven off in her own car to an unknown destination. On the assumption that they must have gone somewhere quite nearby though, house-to-house -house inquiries were concentrated upon the local area and a very basic questionnaire drawn up and circulated, containing the following appeals. 1. Where were you after 7.30 on Friday evening? 2. Did you pass along High Street, Mau Cop? 3. Did you see anything suspicious? 4. Did you see anyone about in the high street vicinity whom you did not know? 5. Did you see any signs of a fight involving a woman or hear anything suspicious? 6. Did you see a red Morris Mini Traveller vehicle, reg number 880WEH, moving along or stationary? If so, where? 7. Did you use a bus in the vicinity of Mau Cop between 7.30 and 11.30 on that evening? If so, did you notice anyone get on whom you did not know or who aroused your suspicions? 8. Did you know Mrs Walton? 9. Did she ever call at your house? 10. Was she due to call at your house? As this got underway, the investigating team also began making discreet inquiries into the private lives of Frank and Mary Walton, and on the surface, the upper middle class couple appeared to be nothing except paragons of virtue who were never known to have rowed about anything in their 20 year marriage. 51 year old Frank Walton was described as being dapper and handsome, having the assured air that reflected the successful executive status he'd acquired as managing director of an engineering firm in nearby Hanley. He combined this with pursuits such as golfing, which he was good enough at to have won several cups and shields, and was also a talented tenor with the North Staffordshire Operatic Company, having taken the lead in many principal roles within their productions. Mary, meanwhile, whilst not sharing her husband's enthusiasm for opera or golf, had dedicated herself to helping those less fortunate, and her caring, kindly nature had made her popular with all who knew her. In fact, more than one person called her Mrs. Kindheart. It seemed highly unlikely that she'd had an enemy or a secret lover who perhaps murdered her in a fit of rage or passion. 
But Mary's murderer had been savage indeed and someone had wanted her very definitely dead. Although there was no sign of any sexual assault and Mary had been found fully clothed, the post-mortem revealed that she had been struck with considerable force about the head with an instrument thought to have been a heavy lump or claw hammer no less than eight times which had shattered her skull to pieces. She had grazes to her legs, marks to her left thumb and a wound to the bridge of her nose as well as severe bruising. As a sum total, the wounds had proved that severe that Mary was found to have lost six pints of blood from her body. That's some bloody grudge that, isn't it? Only one further lead presented itself during the ensuing days of the investigation. Three separate witnesses were to come forward following appeals on the Sunday, who reported that whilst driving near to Maucop Castle between 10 and 11pm on the Friday evening that Mary was killed, had noticed a young woman walking swiftly away from the direction of the castle through the heavily falling snow. Each witness claimed that the young woman was wearing high heels and a fur coat with a collar turned up to shield her face from the elements and conveniently from view. The plot thickens. Later the same day, Detective Superintendent Rimmer received a telephone call from one of his officers who was involved in house-to-house -house inquiries around the nearby village of Rudyard. The information passed to him was enough that only a very short time later he was stood on the doorstep of a 160-acre Green Lane farm on Green Lane on the outskirts of Rudyard, speaking to the farmer, Michael Buxton. Michael told the officer that earlier that morning he'd been taking some farm rubbish to a nearby landfill site where he'd noticed some chunks of frozen snow there that were heavily bloodstained. Already a bit like Poirot, the farmer's little grey cells had begun working overtime, he'd seen the blood and like everyone else in the district was of course by then aware of the savage murder of Mary Walton and he wondered if there could be a connection between the two. And then he remembered something that caused him to telephone police to air his suspicions. He told Detective Superintendent Rimmer, I remembered that my wife said that she saw a red mini parked in front of Miss Massey's cottage for a while on Friday evening. But I must say, I don't believe Gwen knew Mrs. Walton, and it's unthinkable anyway that she could be involved in such a horrid affair. She's a gifted singer and a gentle, kindly person, but she doesn't sing much anymore except with the North Staffordshire Operatic Society. The Gwen he was referring to was 34-year-old Gwendolyn Massey, who lived with her grandparents in a bungalow called The Willows across from Green Lane Farm. Michael Buxton knew her very well, she was his cousin after all, and he'd seen her the previous day clearing her path and dumping the snow over the wall at the landfill site across from the farm gate and Detective Superintendent Rimmer really must have thought that he'd shit a brick here because the farmer had revealed that Gwen Massey performed with the same society that Frank Walton was so active in. Suddenly, a possible motive for the murder of Mary Walton began to take shape in his mind. A sample of the blood-stained snow, which sure enough was there where described, was collected and with great care being taken to prevent it from melting, was rushed away for analysis. When Detective Superintendent Rimmer visited Frank Walton at his home again later that evening, he asked him about his relationship with Gwen Massey. 
Frank admitted that he knew her and that they were good friends, having sung together in many amateur productions, but hesitated when he was then asked if there was a closer relationship between them. He replied with, That's a bit personal, why do you ask? To which Detective Superintendent Rimmer bluntly replied, Because there is reason to strongly suspect that Miss Massey murdered your wife, Mr Walton. Frank Walton looked at him in disbelief and said he couldn't quite get his head around anything so ludicrous sounding, but under persistent questioning, he eventually admitted that he and Gwen had been involved in an affair for the previous three years. However, he was adamant that Gwen could not have done something so callous to have telephoned his wife on the Friday evening, deliberately lured her away from home under false pretenses, and then brutally murdered her. He even claimed that he'd spoken to Gwen twice on the Saturday and after the second time telling her that Mary had not returned home, she had reassured him that she was sure Mary would return safely. Although there wasn't likely to be a loyal husband of the year trophy up there in his cabinet with his bloody golf memorabilia, the superintendent was left convinced that whilst Frank Walton had been involved with another woman, his account was sincere enough that he had no knowledge of the circumstances behind and leading up to his wife's death. So who was Gwen Massey? Reports describe 34-year-old Gwen as being a tall, attractive brunette, a kind and courteous former Sunday school teacher, who was by all accounts also something of a local celebrity. A former nurse... Gwen had left the profession some years previously to try and make a career with a gift that gave her the local celebrity factor, her renowned voice. A gifted soprano since childhood, her family had encouraged her musical talent, and for a long time, since schooling, Gwen had been coached by a specialist tutor in nearby Stoke-on-Trent, Miss Lucy Hall. Following this, she sang in various chapels and churches across Cheshire and Staffordshire, competed in music festivals throughout the north of England, and was even good enough to have won soprano solo class in the prestigious Lytham St Anne's Festival. She for a time pursued a musical career on the stage, but finding this wearying, adopted to return home, moving into the house of her grandparents in Rudyard's Green Lane. Wanting to make friends again after having lived away and keep a hand in at singing though, Gwen had joined first the Rudyard Church Choir and then the North Staffordshire Operatic Society, where among the new friends that she made was one Frank Walton. Although both were to feel a mutual initial attraction, their friendship indeed began innocently enough. As time passed though, and they were placed in the lead spots in this production and that due to their vocal talents, they began rehearsing together, sharing lifts to venues and private dinners, and generally getting to know one another a lot more. As both were prominent members of their communities, neither wanted any gossip and couldn't afford any, so the inevitable affair that began between the pair was very clandestine. They began meeting secretly, and soon were seeing each other at least once or twice each week for sex, usually in Frank's car, but occasionally, when a business trip came around, Frank would whisk Gwen away for a weekend. Things carried on like this for two years, with marriage never being discussed because Frank Walton had no inclination to split from Mary, his wife of 20 years. Although this most likely isn't out of love or devotion, but rather because his social standing would take a battering if he was the subject of gossip about divorces and affairs. 
Then, in the summer of 1961, Gwen told her lover that she was going to have a baby, to which he offered to assume full responsibility for the child and do whatever he could for Gwen and the baby, short of him divorcing Mary. Gwen declined this, though, telling Frank that she'd made her own arrangements, but he gave her the sum of £50 anyway. A few weeks later, she told him that she'd sadly had a miscarriage. Meanwhile, for three years, Mary Walton had never once suspected that her husband had a mistress. He would later testify that he and Mary slept separately and had done so for at least nine years, she seemingly having no interest in sex and she'd been blissfully unaware of her husband's indiscretions until gossip reached her ears that Frank had been seen in London with a woman who wasn't her during a weekend that he had claimed to her to be away on business. She'd confronted him about it and he'd eventually confessed to her that he'd had a lover for the past three years, although he refused point-blank to reveal his mistress's identity. There was shouting, bitterness, and tearful pleadings from Mary for Frank to give up. That low, scheming creature, whoever she is, she was quoted as saying. Finally, Frank had agreed to give up his mistress and to try and forget her to save his marriage. He promised Mary that he wouldn't see his lover for at least six months to do so, and telling Gwen about this, they agreed to stop seeing each other. But still very much in love with Gwen, Frank became haunted by the fear that she may take up with another man, because it's a unique kind of pain knowing that somebody you love is with someone else after all, isn't it? It's like being stabbed, that is. And he began telephoning Gwen each day just to hear her voice and to put his own mind at rest that she was just on a shelf. She assured him that there was nobody else and this was how it went on until December 1962, both of them separated from who they loved. Then they bumped into each other accidentally whilst Christmas shopping and with the emotion of such a meeting proving too much for both to bear, before long they were spending a few hours making up for lost time in a room at a nearby country inn. Following this, however, they'd resumed their pledge to stay apart and had gone their separate ways. It was their last direct contact before Mary Walton was murdered just a few weeks later. Detective Superintendent Rimmer decided it was now time to speak to Gwen Massey himself and so a short time later, the door to the Willows was opened by the singer, whose smile barely faded as she admitted police, telling them, I'm afraid I don't know what it's all about, but do come in anyway. After questioning, Gwen indeed confirmed that she and Frank had been involved in an affair, but it had ended the previous autumn, although they still regularly spoke on the telephone. She claimed to have never met Mary Walton, and on the Friday evening had remained at home, where she'd gone to bed at about 10pm. She also claimed she'd not made or received any telephone calls that evening. She was spoken to again on Tuesday the 12th of February and asked about a red mini that had been seen parked outside her house on the previous Friday evening by Margaret Buxton, but Gwen denied any knowledge of the vehicle and again repeated her story from the Sunday. By the following Saturday, the 16th of February, Tests on the red-stained snow had revealed that it was indeed human blood and of Group A, the same blood group as Mary Walton. So once again, police were back to the Willows to speak to Gwen Massey, this time armed with a search warrant. Watching as the search progressed, 
Gwen then piped up. I think I know why you've come here. It's about those red stains on my path the other morning. Someone has told you about them. Well, I can explain them very easily. Last Friday evening at about 8pm, I heard a dog barking. I happened to look out of the window and I saw a woman lying on my path. I went out and saw that she was dead and covered with blood. I was in a blind panic and I didn't know what to do. I was so horrified I just ran back into the house. I didn't go out again but just stayed listening. At about 10pm I heard a vehicle start up. I looked out and saw that the body was gone. I had no idea who the woman was and I have no idea who killed her. I didn't tell the police about it because it was all so horrible and I did not think anyone would believe me. I've been out of my mind not knowing what to do. I had nothing to do with this terrible thing. I never made any telephone calls. A statement to the effect of this remarkable outburst was taken from Gwen but further interrogation was deferred for the time being until Detective Superintendent Rimmer was called outside by one of his officers. A search of the coal bunker at the cottage had revealed a four-inch long head of a five-pound hammer that later tests would reveal to have been subjected to heat. Pieces of the charred handle still clung to the head. A pathologist would later say that it could quite easily have been the murder weapon. Just before midnight on the evening of Saturday the 16th of February 1963, eight days after the murder, Gwendolyn Massey was taken to Congleton Police Station. Although there's some question as to whether she was invited here to make a formal statement or was arrested, it doesn't appear to have been a visit under caution, at least not initially. Here she sat for some time with her head buried in her hands and complaining of a headache for which she was given medication and water and allowed to rest for a while. Gwen was also affected deeply when she was shown the scorched hammerhead that police had discovered in her coal bunker. She could barely look at it and when she did it caused her nothing but tears. She then spent some time weeping before at 2am that Sunday morning in the presence of Detective Sergeants Edith Allen and Ken Newton, she composed herself and told the officers, I'm ready to tell you now, but it was all so horrible, you've no idea. I did it, but I can't remember much about it. It's all like a horrid nightmare. I rang up Mrs. Walton and arranged to meet her at the plough without explaining who I was. I wanted to settle things once and for all between us, but I didn't expect they'd be settled how they were. Gwen then went on to make her fourth statement to police, beginning it by confirming that the two had met at 7.30pm outside the Plough Inn at Endon, where Mary had followed Gwen's car to her home in Rudyard. She went on, It would not have been so but for her nagging. By the house steps, I told her who I was. As soon as I mentioned that, she sort of hissed at me. She went up the steps first, and at the top of the steps, she started calling me all the things she could think of. I just let fly. I thought she'd be out of his way and mine. I don't know what happened. It all happened so quickly. I let fly at her and we both fell down in the ice. She was stunned and I must have gone crazy. I went and fetched the hammer from the garage. I came back and I hit her on the head with it. I don't know how many times I just hit her and hit her. I hated her so. I don't know what I hit her for, but I was so fed up of her nagging. When she lay still, I bundled her in a blanket and dragged her to her car. 
I got in and drove along the main road in the snow. I just wanted to find a lonely place. I don't know why I chose Maukop Castle. I left her there in the car, but I didn't dare get a lift home because I didn't want to be seen. So I walked back 11 miles in the snow. It was a long way. When I got home, I made a fire and burned the shoes I'd been wearing and put the hammer on the fire. She then went on to say how she'd early the following morning noticed heavy bloodstain into the icy path and had so used a shovel to chip it out, disposing of it across the road at the landfill site, where it had of course been found by her own cousin. The statement ended with Gwen adding, I just didn't mean it. I never thought it would end up like that. I never dreamed anything like that would happen. On Sunday, February 18th, 1963, Gwen Massey was charged with the murder of Mary Walton, where she appeared before Congleton magistrates the following day and was remanded in custody awaiting a committal hearing, which was heard in April of the same year in the same courtroom. At this hearing, prosecuting counsel David Priest-Jones outlined the finding of Mary Walton's body, the investigation and discovery of a possible motive, the affair, plus the discovery and subsequent testing of the blood-stained snow. Several witnesses gave evidence, including Margaret Buxton, who testified that she'd seen Gwen's car and another, a red mini-traveller, parked by the adjacent farm gate at about 8pm. It was still there at 9pm when she'd looked again, but it had gone by 10.15pm, the window in which the prosecution alleged the murder had happened. Three other witnesses, including an off-duty police officer, all testified as to also having seen the same car parked outside the Willows during this time frame. Then, four witnesses testified as to having seen a woman, who at least two of them had positively identified as Gwen Massey, walking back from the direction of Mau Cop towards Leek between 11pm and midnight on the Friday evening of the murder. They remembered it distinctly because of the late hour and the unusual clothing that the woman was wearing on such a snowy night. One of these, a 19-year-old youth named Tom Whitaker, had passed the woman twice as he was taking his girlfriend home when they'd first seen the woman and he had passed her again at about 20 minutes later on his return journey. The remainder of the evidence, thought to refer to the statements Gwen Massey had made to police, was requested by the defence to be heard in camera, a legal term meaning in privacy, no public or media allowed presence, and agreeing to this, chairperson of the Congleton Magistrates, Miss E.A. Ward, ordered the press and public out. They were allowed back in after several hours when this in-camera evidence had been heard, in time to see the magistrates confer for five minutes, and then decide that the criteria had been reached to go to a full trial. Gwen Massey's trial began just the following month at Chester Aziz's, the same court incidentally, which only three years later was to hear one of the most infamous murder cases in not just British criminal history, but worldwide, the Moores murders. On May the 24th, 1963, where she entered a plea of not guilty. Court staff had to fight their way each day through a throng of people that was described as being like a rugby scrum, mostly made up of women eager to get into the public gallery for a glimpse of this notorious woman that the press were calling Gay Gwen. You ladies and true crime, some things don't change there at all, do they? 
The evidence presented and witnesses called were identical to that heard at the committal proceedings, and as Gwen Massey sat quietly and reservedly in the dock, she heard the prosecuting counsel, William Mars Jones QC, contend that in luring Mary Walton from the safety of her home under false pretenses, she demonstrated malicious intent towards her. Regardless of whether the killing was planned, he argued, Gwen Massey had acted with premeditation and therefore had to be held responsible for the violent outcome of the encounter. Ernest Hewson QC, defending, argued that there'd been no deliberate intent to cause injury to Mary Walton and instead claimed that his client had only wished to reason with her in an effort to find a solution to the unhappy love triangle she was involved in and that was ripping her to pieces. But Mrs Walton's spiteful, contemptuous attitude had so inflamed her that she'd taken momentary leave of her senses and reacted with the instinctive ferocity of an animal fighting for its mate. But whilst the jury may sympathise with their emotional problems, they could not be expected to condone her methods of dealing with them. I always love how these legal eagles speak. They have a fantastic grasp of the English language, don't they? Absolutely brilliant. Gwen Massey did not enter the witness box herself to testify in her own defence. She instead sat quietly in the dock throughout the duration of the trial, apparently unmoved by proceedings and witness testimonies, cool and composed throughout, even when a confession was read out. One journalist covering the story reported that Gwen Massey looked less like a murderess than any woman who's ever sat in a British courtroom. Well, that may be but not everyone saw her with such rose-tinted glasses. The all-male jury certainly didn't, and after a trial lasting just five days, decided that Gwen Massey was indeed a cold-blooded murderess, finding her unanimously guilty of premeditated murder, her confession too great a piece of evidence to ignore. Stood in the dock, it was to be the only time Gwen Massey showed any emotion throughout the entire proceedings as she caught the glance of Frank Walton sat across the courtroom before her eyes clouded with tears and she heard presiding Mr Justice Ashworth tell her For the crime of which you've been convicted, the law provides only one penalty, namely imprisonment for life, and that is the sentence I pass upon you. She was then taken away to begin a sentence. Upon the conclusion of the trial, Gwen's brother Richard said, Although we were half prepared for this, the verdict was a terrible shock. It's the verdict of guilty which upsets us as much as the sentence. Only a week later, Gwen Massey launched plans to appeal a conviction, but her appeal was ultimately rejected on Friday the 1st of November 1963. Although they were shocked and devastated at the verdict, all of Gwen's immediate family stood by her, convinced that despite her confession, she'd just lost all control of her senses in a temporary moment of madness, struggling to believe she was a cold-blooded, premeditated killer. Tales emerged in the press following her conviction of how she'd been a Sunday school teacher, how she was a caring aunt, Margaret Buxton even revealed on the numerous occasions she'd been to see Gwen in Strangeways Prison, where she was being held on remand, she'd each time taken her several letters written by the Buxton children who still loved their Auntie Gwen so much. And indeed, Gwen Massey proved to be such a model prisoner during her imprisonment that after serving only six years of her life sentence, she was released from prison in late 1969. 
authorities convinced that she posed no threat whatsoever to the general public. Following her release, Gwen Massey, the woman who at one time following a conviction even had a waxwork of herself in Blackpool monikered The Singing Killer, faded into obscurity. There's no record of her ever coming to police attention again following her release, or whether she married, moved away, changed the name to start a new life, any record of her death, nothing whatsoever. If she is still alive today, she would now be 90 years old, having spent the last 50 years living with the enormity of what she'd done. Now I'd come across both of the Maucop cases before and I'd parked them to the back of my mind so I was delighted when Ian suggested them and provided me with a lot of useful research as it's an area that he's geographically very familiar with because he lives quite nearby. Stephen's case I had intended to feature in a future episode concerning a series of similar murders of taxi drivers across the country but I instead direct you to a recent episode of the fabulous UK true crime podcast, The Unseen Podcast, where the host Caprice has given a fantastic account of these cases already. But the account of Gay Gwen, the singing killer, as far as I know, hasn't been covered by another show to date, so my thanks to Ian for suggesting it and spurring it on. So it's over to you guys to hear your thoughts concerning the tales submitted by Rachel and Ian. Did Chivers, Perkins and King get a worthy sentence for supplying such a dangerous substance, in Rachel's account? And what more can be done to put a stop to deaths such as Sean's or Eloise's? What are your thoughts about that? Or what happened to Stephen Johnson? Was it a local killer, or killers even, missed in the initial investigation? Did his killer possibly strike again? And what was the reason behind the murder? And the case of Gwen Massey? Was it premeditated cold-blooded murder or a moment of pure madness never to be repeated? Did she even act fully alone? I mean, did she really walk 11 miles back through the hard snow that night or did she protect someone else to the very end? Now Ian is convinced, knowing the area, Ian's convinced that she would be unable to walk 11 miles through the snow and I have to say, I just don't know. I don't know. What do you guys think? I'd love as ever to hear your thoughts concerning the accounts that you've heard throughout the episode, which you can do so on the thread on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast Facebook discussion page, or get in touch through any of the show's social media. You can email me, the usual score guys, I'm sure you know. I hope that you found the accounts as interesting and informative as I did when I received them, and my thanks once again to both Rachel and Ian for the sterling work there. The same offer goes out, folks. If you have a case of interest to you that you fancy looking into for a future listener episode, these are a familiar through each series now, I'm sure you know, then by all means get in touch, I shall be more than happy to host them. I'm back in the writing chair for next week's episode, where we once again look at some ghosts of Christmas past, which I hope you guys can join me for. That's it for this week, I thank you very much for joining me, Rachel and Ian, and all that remains for me to say is I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you guys good and safe times, and I shall speak to you soon. Cheers all, and goodbye for now.